Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. At Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, we recognise that you're not just one kind of writer. Perhaps you're banging out a novel between copywriting gigs, or maybe you're a blogger with a sideline in poetry. Whatever type or types of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you the shot of inspiration you need to finish that novel, submit that thesis or launch that freelance career. I'm your host Claire Lynch and in this episode I talk to Professor Mike McCarthy. Mike is one of the world's leading experts on the way writers and speakers use the English language and in this episode Mike talked about seeing grammar as a tool to get your point across rather than a strict set of rules designed to constrain you. That's coming right up. Today's show, I'm absolutely thrilled to have with me Professor Mike McCarthy. Uh, Mike is Emeritus Professor of Applied Linguistics in the School of English at the University of Nottingham in the UK. And Mike has spent the past 50 years researching, teaching and writing about the English language. Uh, He's taught all over the world and is the author of more than 50 books and 109 academic papers dealing with the research and teaching of the English language. So I think it's safe to say that Mike is literally a giant in his field. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Now, Mike, you're about six foot and pretty trim, so when I referred to you as literally a giant just now, I was, of course, using the word literally in its extended informal use for emphasis rather than to suggest that you actually were of monstrously large stature. So, But I suspect I may have made one or two listeners' ears bleed Uh, by using literally in that way. So my first question to you as one of the world's leading experts on the English language, are you offended by my suggesting that you're literally a giant? No, because in fact, um, in some of the research I've done over the years, most notably when I was researching with my great colleague and friend, the late Professor Ron Carter, we looked at exaggeration, hyperbole as it's sometimes called. And one of the things we looked at in our corpus, our database of spoken English, was the word literally. And to our great interest and entertainment, we realized that when people say literally, you can be pretty sure that what is going to follow is anything but literal. It's not going to be literal at all. It's going to be an exaggeration. We had somebody who said, I've got literally millions of cousins. (laughs) Now, of course, we know nobody has millions of cousins, but you can certainly have 10 or 15 or even 20. So, yes, literally is one of those examples of how we engage the people we're talking with, our listeners, our interlocutors, and how we make what we are saying more interesting, more um, engaging for the listener. It's what we call audience design. You're designing what you say, not just to give a good impression of yourself, but you are designing it with the listener, the audience in mind. And that's a very important concept in all spoken language and written language. Because often people get hung up upon on the rules and mm. appearing correct. Mm. Um, how do you feel generally about that adherence? Are there any, for example, any grammar rules that a lot of people are attached to that you think are 
silly or outdated? Well, let's look at the word rules, first of all. It's probably not the best word to use about the way language is actually uh, put into practice. It would be far better to talk about conventions. Uh, conventions are what the majority of people agree on. They're not rules in the sense that if you break them, there's something uh, wrong or there's some sort of punishment. What it means is that uh, to follow the convention, you are saying to all your fellow human beings in a particular community, in this case, for example, British English, you're saying, yes, I know what the agreed conventions are and I'll stick to them. If we look at individual examples, a good case would be um, something like the use of there is and there are. Now, if you take a conventional view of rules uh, and look in any grammar reference book, including the ones I've written myself, you will be told that there is must be followed by a singular complement, as we call it. So, there is a good Chinese restaurant just around the corner. There are, in the rule book, is always followed by a plural. So, there are three good Chinese restaurants in the main square, for example. But if you look at real data, even amongst so-called highly educated speakers and professional speakers, you will find that in the spoken language, there is, or at least the reduction there's, is very commonly used with a plural noun. So someone might say, there's two reasons why I don't want to do that. There's two reasons. Breaking the rule on the face of it, but nobody notices that because speech occurs in real time, online. It would be pedantic and ridiculous to stop someone and say, oh, you can't say that. You and have quite to rude, say, I would and think. And rude, very impolite. There are, and say, oh, you can't say that. You have to say, there are two reasons. Now, in writing, it's different. In writing, you have time to reflect, to consider. And especially if you're in a situation where the writing is very important, such as an examination or a crucial report that's going to be read by a very significant reader, a group of readers, your employer or a, a client in a business context, then you might indeed adopt a different convention. And you might say, within this world of formal writing, my dissertation, an examination, an important report, then I will follow the more conventional, uh, traditional rule of there are plus um, a plural. So the rules are not really rules, they are conventions. They're slightly different in different contexts. Informal conversation with your friends is different from uh, a business report or an academic essay, but also they change over time. For example, we know that nowadays it's considered incorrect to say, this is the most biggest house in the street. In Shakespeare's time, the exact opposite was true. In Shakespeare's time, saying things like most biggest most loveliest, most finest, was actually considered a very elegant and high-level form of speaking. 
you've showed your education and your elegance by doing this double superlative. Emphatic, not to be taken literally, just like the word literally. Fantastic. I remember when I first um, studied Anglo-Saxon literature and one of the first texts we read was um, a piece by written by King Alfred and he uses so many double negatives mm -hmm. but uses them for emphasis and that's yes. another example of where the language has changed. You're considered yeah. by some people to be sort of illiterate if you use lots yes. of double negatives. And there are within Britain uh, there are dialects where double negatives are normal. So, I ain't never done it yeah. would be quite normal where we are here in East Anglia, right. in Cambridgeshire, where we're doing this interview. Uh, but it would not be acceptable, uh, once again, in formal writing or in more formal contexts, such as a job interview or a, a broadcast on radio or television or any formal situation where you're giving a lecture at a conference, for instance. But having said that, there are all sorts of double negatives that pass by without being noticed in everyday language. My wife and I were once at a bird sanctuary, a conservation area, where uh, everybody says there are wonderful birds to look at and other wildlife. And the day we were there, it was um, quite grey and foggy and one of us said to the other, I don't think we'll see much wildlife today. And the other person said, not without binoculars we won't. Where, on the face of it... <laughs> if you actually... If you analysed it from yes. a logical, mathematical <laughs> point of view, you would be saying... Um, <laughs> it's actually quite difficult to say it in any other way. Um, without binoculars we will doesn't seem to make any sense. Yes. Um, not with binoculars we won't equally doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. The only thing that makes sense is to say not without binoculars we won't. Another example was someone said in our corpus says, I thought a secret was something you didn't tell anybody. And the other person says, not where I work it isn't. <laughs> so... In the spoken language, this is one of the crucial differences between spoken grammar and the grammar of writing. In the spoken language, we do all sorts of things to engage our listeners. We can break some of the rules that we would prefer to keep in more formal writing or more formal speaking. So really, we have not just one grammar of English, we have several grammars. There is the grammar of formal writing. There's the grammar of informal writing, such as tweets and emails and Facebook postings. We don't expect a Facebook posting to read like an academic essay because it's following a different grammar. It can leave out things which would have to be present in the written language. So the most important thing is to have that awareness of the relationship between the context you are in and the grammatical choices that you can make and to make the appropriate ones. So it's a question of appropriacy and conventions. It's not a set of rules like traffic regulations where you have to keep to 30 miles an hour or you have to stop at a red light. It's not that kind of 
ruled at all. Yes, I mean, I always think it's about um, what does your audience expect? Yes. Um, so yeah. one of those traffic regulations rules that often comes up when I'm teaching classes is the rule uh, the, about uh, splitting the infinitive. You mm -hmm. should never split an infinitive. Mm -hmm. And people say, you know, I believe in this rule and I stick to it. I'm very much of the you can split of of you infinitives can. As, yeah. as much as you can. Mm. However, if you're writing for an audience that will be offended by yes. you splitting that of in infinitive, then don't. <laughs> exactly. So, for example, I've spent many years now traveling around the world giving lectures to groups of English teachers. And very often you have to be aware that they will expect you as the so-called expert to use a particular type of grammar or a particular type of vocabulary. And if you do something that goes against their expectation, they will question you afterwards. They will come up to you after the lecture and say, look, you said there is, and then you used a plural. I thought you were supposed <laughs> to be an expert. So I think you're absolutely right. It's all about awareness of your audience, designing what you say or what you write with your audience in mind. It's even though you're sitting alone in a room with a laptop or a pen and paper, it's not a monologue. It is always, always, always a dialogue. The only time you can engage in monologue is if you're talking to yourself, <laughs> <laughs> where you are the audience and the, and the speaker. Yes, I mean, or a diary, a private diary, where you are the writer and the reader. But in almost all cases, and I suspect even in the case of private diaries, you're rather hoping someone will read it. Yes, no one likes to write into a void. <laughs> and I always, I always, um, the piece of advice I often give people is to, when you're sitting down to write, imagine that reader in front of you. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. your writing will be yeah. much more powerful if you yes. are yeah. talking yeah. to them directly. Um, one aspect of uh, grammar that a lot of people I've taught um seem to get particularly hung up on is punctuation mm -hmm. um, and often if you ask people what they need to do improve to improve their writing they'll say well it's grammar and punctuation mm -hmm. uh, and my view is that we all speak in perfectly good grammatical sentences every hour of every day uh, and punctuation is just there to help you make your writing clearer um, but so I feel that those are the least effective aspects of writing. What What do you think? What do you think is the most important thing about being a, a, a persuasive, engaging writer? Well, I think probably it's the way you package or organise the information. Uh, so the grammar gives us various ways of making an impact, of packaging the information. Nothing is worse than an essay or a dissertation or a report which is like a flat landscape. Imagine a landscape that is completely flat. No hills, no valleys, no nothing. It all looks exactly the same. That is what you have to avoid. So a good piece of writing is like a landscape with hills or mountains. It has high peaks and then sometimes it will go into a valley. And then it will go back to a further peak and a further peak so that your reader knows what the most important things are that you want to make, your most important points. And the grammar of the language 
does this. The punctuation does it to a certain extent as well, with things like exclamation marks. But the overuse of exclamation marks can be very irritating to a reader. Everything's important. Everything is important. I'm shouting all You're the time. shouting at the reader, yeah. Far more subtle and far more useful is to look at ways in which the grammar enable you to highlight, to shine a light on something. Now, this can be done by word order. So, in general, in English, what you put at the front catches the attention. So, I can say something like, it inevitably rains when I go on holiday, which is perfectly normal, if you like, a correct sentence. But I can bring the word inevitably to the front and give it greater focus. Inevitably, it rains when I'm on holiday. So, I, so that's one way you can, you can work with the word order. Another is to use certain types of grammatical construction. So instead of saying, it always rains when I go on holiday, say, what always happens when I go on holiday is it rains. And those what constructions are very important. We call them WH cleft sentences, but you don't need to know that terminology. What you need to know is that if you are writing or reading a paragraph, that research has shown that the what clause is a more reliable guide to the main point of the paragraph than that old rule about the first sentence in the paragraph, the topic sentence. Yes, the topic sentence tells you what the paragraph is about, but if in that paragraph you spot a what always happens is, what the government should do is, what I've always noticed is, what researchers found was, that's the sentence that is the mountain, the peak of the paragraph. There are maybe other little hills around it, but that's where your main point is. That's the, the punchline of the whole paragraph. And research shows this consistently. So the grammar isn't just a set of rules for being correct. The grammar enables you to package your information in a way that makes it engaging to the reader. The grammar also enables you not to sound too arrogant with all the modal verbs like could be, might be, maybe, can be, or adverbs like possibly, potentially, or you can be very assertive and use uh, modal adverbs like definitely, certainly, without doubt, undoubtedly. All of these questions of how you package your information, either showing what is important, what is not important, how assertive you want to be, or how indirect you want to be, how much you want to bring your reader into the text. Do I write the text as I or as we? Do I say, scientists do not know much about the planet Pluto, or do I say, we don't know much about the planet Pluto? That we includes your reader, it means everybody. So there are choices like that, which are much more important than, oh, should I use a semicolon or, or a dash here? Or should I use single inverted commas or double inverted commas? Or should I put this word in italics? The big questions are, how do I organize my information? And how do I create that landscape of peaks and valleys of important things and less important things? How do I bring you in as the reader? How do I project myself as the writer, as the arrogant expert, or as someone who is sharing a journey with you of exploration of difficult ideas, difficult concepts?
So grammar is a tool to be used rather than a stick to beat ourselves Absolutely with. Absolutely it is. It's, it's a set of tools. It's just like your toolbox with hammers, hammers and chisels and screwdrivers. They all do different jobs. Um, and you need to know which job each tool does. It's no good trying to put a screw in using a hammer. It's no good trying to put a nail in using a screwdriver. And so good grammars, good grammar books, good grammar guides will give you that kind of advice. Yes, they'll tell you the conventions, the rules, but much more than that, a good grammar course or a good grammar textbook, a good grammar guide or handbook will give you advice on how to exploit and manipulate that grammar to the best effect in your writing. And you've written a lot of very good grammar books. Um, I think most recently you've written a, a small guide, Your English Grammar, Your Questions Answered. Well, thank you for mentioning that. In fact, there's a new edition just came out last week, Great. which is available if you search on Amazon. And it's I've just taken away the word English, and it's just called Grammar and Usage, Your Questions Answered. Now, that is aimed at mostly at native speakers and high-level expert users. But if you're a learner who is, for example, at, say, B2 level or C1 or C2, I actually have a new book that just came out three days ago oh. um, called 101 Tips for English Language Learners. And it's a, it, it is indeed a, 101 tips um, on... <clears throat> excuse me, on avoiding some of the most common problems of grammar and vocabulary. And it has a special section on tips for academic writers, and it has some exercises in it. So it's called 101 Tips for Language Learners. And I hope in it I've put in those 50-odd years of experience that you very kindly mentioned, because over those 50 years... I've been collecting what you might call field notes, just observations of the typical problems that learners encounter in their writing and to a lesser extent in their speaking. And I have card indexes and notes and endless notes of, of um, the same problems that keep cropping up. And you can narrow them down to just a few grammatical problems, problems uh, with prepositions, problems with articles, and problems uh, with the tenses and aspects of verbs. Those are the general big things that keep coming back, the same old things year after year after year. So there are tips on that, but there are also specific tips on academic writing, um, which I've brought down to 10, top 10, top 10 tips for academic writers, so could readers you, might find useful. Could you maybe give us... Uh, a tip from that Well, of one of the tips is about the use of the passive and something which we in this room share, never use the passive just to sound academic or elegant. But on the positive side, um, if we look at our corpus, our database, we see that the passive is often used um, to acknowledge work which is widely accepted, where you don't need to mention any individual um, researcher or any individual team of scientists. So constructions like, it is widely accepted that, it is generally acknowledged that. These it passives are very common in academic and professional writing. 
So they are places where it's quite appropriate to use the passive. And indeed, uh, it might be rather more wordy to, to do something else. So there are tips of that kind in there. And um, <clears throat> that would be just one, just one example of it. Um, but also, um, you know, more specific tips throughout the book, um, such as um, the uh, importance of information in different types of relative clauses and so on, which is less important in speaking because we do so much with intonation. But in writing, it's, it's quite crucial to distinguish between known and unimportant information and new uh, defining type of information, oh, yes, specifying is. information. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing. Uh, there are a lot of um, common mistakes that are dealt with, but there are also, on the positive side, uh, tips for um, improving your, your, your general grammatical and, and vocabulary knowledge. And the same vocabulary problems come up year after year after year as well. Uh, especially things like the appropriate prepositions to follow words. Is it depend on or depend of? Is it the same than or the same as? You know, these things have been going since I started teaching in the 1960s, and which I still noticed as recently as three or four months ago when I was teaching with you, Claire, in the University of Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like a very useful tool that... Um... Well, I hope it will be. It's a small book. You can slip it into your pocket or into your, your briefcase. And um, I hope you'll enjoy it. Just uh, look it up. It's available on Amazon, is it? It is, yes. 101 Tips for Language Learners. And as I say, that is aimed more at uh, learners of English as a second or foreign language. The other book you kindly mentioned, Grammar and Usage, Your Questions Answered, is aimed at a wider audience of expert users of English and native users of English, who often have many more problems than second language learners, or say they have. You mentioned it yourself, you know, that people will typically, uh, they'll make some comment about, oh, I was never any good at grammar at school, or I'm a hopeless speller, or I don't know anything about punctuation. It's aimed at that kind of worried well. You might call it, <laughs> the grammatically worried well, because most people, in fact, can express themselves perfectly all right, and very few people need to write very formal dissertations or reports or, or to give grand speeches. Most communication is either spoken in conversation or nowadays, of course, is done online in yes. social media, emails, and so on, where you have great greater flexibility. Yeah, I sometimes feel that. When people sit down to write, they, they suddenly feel like they've got a Shakespearean quill in their hand. And well, they, exactly, yes, um, yes. And that induces panic. Uh, people freeze up. They say, I don't know where to start. They start a sentence and throw the paper in the waste bin or they delete what they typed on their screen. And um, <clears throat> in fact, that's probably the worst thing you can do. I mean, one of the pieces of advice that I give about writing... I've supervised over the years many students who have to write dissertations, essays, uh, reports, um, all sorts of documents. And one piece of advice that I always give is don't start at the beginning. 
Start in the middle. See your writing almost like the wheel of a bicycle or a car, where you have the hub, which is the round bit in the middle, and out of that hub, there are spokes which radiate, these lines that radiate. The hub is, what am I trying to say? What is this essay all about? What is the most important point I want to make? In two or three sentences, what is this 50,000 word dissertation all about? Then, once you've got that done, it's much easier to go out to, okay, so what literature have I reviewed? Okay, so what analytical methods or approaches have I used? Okay, so what are my conclusions and pointing forward to future directions and research? So seeing it as that kind of wheel takes away that panic of, oh my gosh, I've got to start at the beginning. What's the opening sentence? It's got to be all correct. I think also having that hub being able to articulate what that 15,000-word mm-hmm. thesis mm-hmm. is in a couple of sentence, sentences is really good socially when you're sitting around the mm-hmm. Christmas dinner table with your yes. family and they say, well, so what is your PhD actually about? Yes. Or what, what line of business are you in? Yes. What do you do at work? Even just asking people, what's your typical day at work? Yeah. Very often people say, oh, I don't know. You know it's all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> And being able to articulate main points in just one or two sentences is a great skill. And I know over the years, one of the techniques I've always used when examining uh, students' PhD and master's theses in the interview, the Viva examination, my first question is always, before we look at your dissertation, before we look at your thesis, tell me in one or two sentences what it's all about. And if the student cannot do that, you have two worries. (laughs) One is that the thesis is not very good. The other possibility is they didn't write it. They got somebody else to write it. But that's that's the darkest thought. That's the darkest thought. But generally, you should be able to say what your writing is about in one or two sentences. And if you get those two sentences right, grammatically and in terms of content and vocabulary, the rest just flows like a river. Falls into place. Yeah. So go into the centre, construct two or three good sentences about the report, about the case study, about the essay, about the dissertation. And if you have those two or three good sentences ready, the rest will come very naturally. And you will be less panicked, you will be more relaxed, you can focus more on the grammar and vocabulary because the content is already there. You know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, that leads me on to, um, nicely on to um, asking you about your own habits and processes as mm-hmm. a writer. So this is just a bit of a quick yeah. fly around. Yeah. So um, first question, uh, what fuels your writing? Coffee, tea or something stronger? <laughs> Tea mostly, I have to say. Uh, I drink more tea every day than coffee. I have one cup of coffee, but probably about four or five cups of tea. And another odd thing that I always tell people is, I write best under two conditions, when I'm slightly hungry and slightly cold. Oh, interesting. Keeps you alert. Yes. And I think the model comes from wild animals, uh, lions and tigers and wolves and so on hunt when they are hungry. And what do they do as soon as they've eaten? They always sleep. And I know that if I have just eaten, and if I'm too warm, I look at my screen, 
and it begins to swim in front of my eyes and my eyes begin to fall closed. But if I'm a bit hungry and if the temperature of the room is not too high, it's a bit cool, I'm like a wild animal. I'm <laughs> ready to write. Great. So um, I suppose that leads me on to my next question. When do you like to write? Are you a log or an owl? When do you most like to be hungry and cold? Oh, I write best in the mornings, mm-hmm. between the hours of nine and one o'clock, say. Mm-hmm. In the afternoon, I might turn my attention to other things like reading articles or messing about with, with music and poetry and, and other things. But the writing, the bulk of the writing, including today, because we are now talking uh, at the beginning of the afternoon, I've spent this morning revising an article. And I know that that's when I do it best. And I don't work late at night. I find it impossible to work after about seven o'clock in the evening. And um, you've talked about the hub uh, so are you are you more of a planner than a plunger? Do you draft a detailed outline or do you dive right in? I dive in and usually write a series of paragraphs which are at the heart of the paper, or uh, since I mostly write articles, I do that. And then I work backwards to the introduction and forward to the conclusion. But I always go straight into the heart of it. I do make notes. Um, and if I'm reading something, um, usually on screen, I will use a yellow uh, highlight to, to highlight particular things. And I extract quotation, quotations which I think might be useful in what I'm writing. Uh, but I don't make very detailed plans. I don't plan sections and subsections. So that's a confession, because I stand in front of classrooms of students and tell them that they should make plans. <laughs> um, I think it's a question of your own style. Acquire the style that suits you best. Some people have to have that rigid plan. You see, as a teacher, I've never had a rigid lesson plan. Even when I was training to be a school teacher and we were obliged to write lesson plans, I would go into the classroom and throw it into the waste bin and then just teach. And to me, a good lesson was something organic, which moved in the direction that the learners wanted to take it, Mm -hmm. which coped with things that cropped up unexpectedly. There might have been an overall goal, there usually was, or a set of goals, but not a rigid plan. And i that's my style. Other teachers I know need a plan for their lessons, step-by-step, almost minute-by-minute. And those same people might find a plan incredibly useful for writing. Try it out, that's the main thing. See Don't what works knock for it you. till you've tried it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you've obviously tried the planning and it didn't work for It you. didn't work for me, yeah. no. no. Uh, would you describe your desk as clear or cluttered? Very clear. Mm-hmm. I, I like to keep it clear. And if you, if you want to, at the end of this interview, I'll show it to you. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, I don't like clutter. Um, I don't like it in the house yes. either. Yeah. Um, music or silence when writing? You mentioned No, it's very interesting. Music. Um 
it depends on the kind of thing I'm writing. If I'm just taking notes and doing what I said earlier, uh, things like reading and taking quotations and making rough notes, I can listen to music and I enjoy listening to music. Nothing loud or, 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 or rock. It will tend to be either fairly calm classical music, uh, early music, sacred music, um, or folk music. But when it comes to the actual final serious writing, then I don't listen to music. I think it's too much of a distraction. But I can do it under certain circumstances, and I do. And um, who is your favourite writer? My favourite writer um, in terms of general fiction and so on, or um, in academic and professional writing, well, just generally. Just generally. I mean, you ooh, can give ooh, me two yeah. writers if you okay. like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very fond of Irish um, writers. I always have been. And Colm Tobin is mm -hmm. uh, a superb writer. Mm -hmm. I, I think anything I read by him is wonderful and will engage me. He can be sometimes quite dark and thoughtful. At the other extreme, my other favourite Irish writer is Flann O'Brien, who is essentially a humorist, bizarre, wacky, sort of quirky, uh, crazy type of humour, uh, almost dipping in and out of a fantasy, magical world and the real world. So they would be my two favourite writers in English. However, I'm also... Uh, lucky enough to be able to write, uh, to read in Spanish because I did my degree in Spanish, and there it would have to be Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the author of A Hundred Years of Solitude, which I think is one of the greatest books in the whole of world literature. Mm -hmm. And other books by Marquez uh, have also been fantastic. Great, and finally, you've given us lots of writing tips, but could you could you? End with one final corker of a tip. Corker of a tip in writing. It would, it would have to be back to this idea of know your landscape. Know which pieces of information are the ones that you want to hit home to your reader. And the other thing is, and this applies not just to writing, but to presentations and, and conference papers and so on. Never try to say too much. Your reader will take away perhaps a maximum of three key points. So whether it is a, a, a 2,000 word essay or a 10,000 word report or case study, make sure that you have two or three, maybe a maximum of four, certainly no more, let's say three key points that you want your reader or your listener to remember. And make sure that those three key points are at the beginning of what you're saying and then, of course, are demonstrated, illustrated or proven in the main body of your text. And then at the end, just remind the reader what those three points were. That always works. Yeah, great advice. Mike, it's been a delight talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. And... Um, Good luck with the books. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure to uh, talk to you about these matters, Claire. And I wish you every success too. Thank you. If 
you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you could leave a review while you're there, that would really help me get the show noticed. Visit goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life. I've been your host, Claire Lynch. Goodbye till the next episode. Thank you.